The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hi, uh, this is uh, Lawrence Kotlikoff. Um, I'm here without my sidekick, my son, Alex Kotlikoff. We're doing Economics Matters, the podcast. I'm delighted today to have my dear friend and past former colleague uh, and uh, uh, just close associate, uh, Glenn Lowry, who's a professor of economics at Brown University. I'm going to uh, give you uh, some of his bio in a moment, but I wanted to say hi to begin with you, you Glenn, and uh, great to be on your show. Uh, great to have you on my show rather than being on the Glenn show uh, this time, although I've really enjoyed uh, being on the show, uh, on your show, and it's a fantastic uh, thing for everybody in the country. They should all subscribe to the Glenn Show uh, immediately. There you go. That's glennlowry.substack.com, glennlowry.substack.com. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Thanks a lot. Uh, sure. Good to be with you uh, at uh, Economics Matters. Yeah, at larrykotlikoff.substack.com. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Glenn, let me uh, tell everybody a little bit about you because not everybody, people should know everything, you know, I know about you, but um, not everybody uh, follows academic economists or uh, pu public intellectuals uh, uh, that, that closely, but, but Glenn is a premier public intellectual. He's also the Merton Stoltz uh, Professor of Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. Uh, previously, he taught at Boston University, where he was my colleague, uh, he was at Harvard University, and before that, and before that, he was at Northwestern uh, as a professor of economics, uh, associate, and then full professor at Harvard, then came to BU as a full professor. And I guess you before that, you started out at the University of Michigan. No, I actually, I started out at Northwestern, and I moved to Michigan before coming to Harvard. Oh, I got it. Okay. Uh, so Glenn has a BA in mathematics at mathematics at Northwestern that he got that he got that degree in 72 and then he got a PhD at MIT in 1976 and you need to understand that um, well getting a, a BA in mathematics anywhere is a really very high hurdle getting it at Northwestern is particularly high but MIT has always been the premier technical school in the country, but also in economics. So Glenn was uh, in a class of the most elite um, mathematically uh, capable economists in, in the world. Um, and he was uh, probably at the top of the class from what I gather talking to, to uh, people uh, who were classmates with him at the time and uh, you know, asking him questions about his experience. Uh, in, in the courses and so forth, but uh, Glenn's published, it wasn't just that he got into these thing places, and, but you can tell from the fact uh, where he ended up 
in terms of his jobs that he succeeded. Uh, as an academic economist, he's uh, published mainly in the area of applied macro microeconomic theory, game theory, industrial organization, natural resource economics, and economics of race and inequalities. He's, I think, most widely known among the general public for his work in race and inequality, but uh, but economists uh, who know his uh, work know that he's a very general economist. He can handle any issue in economics and has handled just a enormous range of questions from um, you know inequality over time, uh, uh, perpetuation of inequality to uh, patent, uh, how we should be setting patent laws to uh, natural resource economics, game theory. When he was at BU for what, five or six years, uh, we had some pretty uh, pretty heavy hitters in that in the seminars in our uh, faculty, and Glenn was always uh, uh, coming out with a, with the uh, toughest and most interesting questions. Uh, the uh, he's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Of the he's a fellow of the Econometric Society. He's a member of the American Philosophical Society. Vice President of the American Economic Association. President of the Eastern Amer uh, Economics Association. He won the John Van Von Neumann Award uh, from uh, the University of Budapest, a uh, very prestigious award. Von Neumann is credited with the, uh, if I believe I got this right, the invention of the computer, uh, the modern computer. Uh, and uh, he's a recipient of, the, of a Guggenheim Fellowship, Carnegie Scholarship, He's given the prestigious Tanner Lectures on Human Values at Stanford, the James Moffat Lectures at Princeton on Ethics, uh, and the Du Bois Lectures in African American Studies at Harvard. And you recently re received the, uh, won the Bradley Prize. So I could go on for probably the entire period of this podcast just talking about your accomplishments, but we're going to stop there um, and let people <laughs> go online and find your bio. And get and talk to you about uh, the theme of today's um, discussion, which is why does racial inequality persist, and what should we be doing about it? Okay. So, so uh, uh, well, I mean, I don't know what to say after that introduction. Okay. My God, thank you, Larry. It went on for a long time. Well, okay. So the the accomplishments go on for a long time. So thank you. Uh, so well, I want to say one other thing. I do want to say one other thing. I left out, which is, I do think at some point you're going to get the Nobel Prize in economics for the work on uh, racial economics, uh, uh, the economics of race. But there's also this incredible body of other stuff that um, merits uh, uh, that that really continues to influence the profession. But let's let's talk about. Well, let me say something. Let me say something. I've been uh, reminiscing about my, you know, 1972 when I left Northwestern with a BA in math, 50 years ago, man. 1976 with MIT. Been reminiscing about my early days in economics. You know what that department was like when I was a student, and what Northwestern was like when I came as an assistant professor in the late 70s, where people like Roger Meyerson and Ben Constrom and uh, Paul Milgram and you know, they had a math center there. You talk about math and economics. I remember the the kind of culture shock of moving from the world of uh, Paul Samuelsonian 
uh, optimal growth theory, you know, everything differentiable and smooth and, you know, or calculus and linear algebra compared to statics and to the world of linear models and uh, activity analysis, which was much more like, uh, you know, a Yale a cow's uh, foundation or uh, a kind of Minnesota North, you know, they had a, it had a different feel to the mathematics and they were doing mechanism design stuff, man. They were doing incentives uh, and, uh, you know, our optimal auctions. What Myerson was doing his early work on that stuff. I was, uh, I was around at that time. So, you know, uh, I, I got a really, really, profound introduction to analytical social science when I was a graduate student at, at MIT in the early 70s. And I've tried to apply those methods to every, uh, every kind of uh, intellectual challenge that I confront. Right. So, uh, but you've also written and continue to write and speak to the public uh, with, and with great eloquence and, and, uh, and, uh, capacity in terms of communication. Uh, so let's start out by talking about, since we're talking about does racial inequality persist, maybe you could describe in your mind what, what do you think uh, when you review the state of racial conflict is today in the country? Uh, you know, take it away. Okay, so what I think is when I was in graduate school, it was the 1970s, that was a half century ago. And at that time, it was a decade after the you know, Martin Luther King, March on Washington, Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act, Lyndon Johnson, Great Society. It was a decade after the, you know, long hot summers of the 1960s, assassination of King, assassination of uh, Malcolm X, of uh, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, excitement in the air about applying the methods of economics to, you know, resolving the urban crisis, you know, the, the the kind of uh, the the equality crisis and the 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 Negro dilemma, Gunnar Myrdal, you know, the American dilemma, the Negro, Negro and heavy inverted commas, but you know, there was there was that kind of talk in the air. Uh, Anti discrimination law was was relatively new. I mean, guys like Orly Ashenfelter, uh, James Heckman, these are labor economists, econometricians who are you know very venerable figures in the profession. We're just cutting their teeth, uh, you know, uh, and uh, Gary Becker's uh, influence in economics uh, was uh, on uh, how you were thinking about discrimination issues. Kenneth Arrow, uh, information theoretic applications, uh, this was all kind of in the air. So, you know, when I was trying to figure out what to write as a dissertation, I stumbled upon the uh, trying to model the over generational arc of uh, economic uh, uh, standing uh, within demographically differentiated populations. Okay, so uh, race was a kind of marker or a social uh, convention that uh, caused a certain degree of segregation in society. And if you had a theory of growth, if you had a theory of economic dynamics uh, that was like a single agent or something like that, everybody was homogeneous, that would be one thing. But if you uh, segregated the population and, and you looked at different patterns of social interaction within subgroups of the population, uh, that would be another. So I, I set for myself uh, the task of trying to write down a simple 
more or less neoclassical growth model of income dynamics that uh, took account of social externalities and the acquisition of human capital, which externalities were propagated through the networks of affiliation among individuals in the economy. And those networks could reflect racial identity dynamics. So that, that was the problem that I set for myself. I'm going on too long. Thanks for giving me a lot of time to talk, Larry. Uh, I, I'm talking like I'm talking to an economist. I know most of your audience might not be economists. But let's uh, let's just break that down just a little bit. Um, you know, you talked about uh, social networks, uh, and you developed at an early stage the concept of social capital. And you, I used the phrase anyway. I use I, I did. I mean, develop might be putting it too strongly, but James Coleman, the late uh, sociologist, University of Chicago, uh, eminent figure, does credit me. So does Robert Putnam, the political scientist. Uh, still very much with us uh, and influential uh, student of, of government. Uh, give me some, some credit for in introducing this idea. So, yeah. Maybe you want to explain what that is to the general audience here uh, in your view. Okay, so human capital, social capital. So human capital, our skills and uh, productivity enhancing traits that individuals might acquire. Uh, through education or through training uh, or uh, you know what whatever route that enhance their earnings uh, potential and that an analyst could use to try to explain differences in earnings in a population measure the human capital correlate that to the earnings and then account for the disparity in the earnings uh, social capital broadly speaking in my mind was the idea that the amount of human capital acquired by somebody to whom you're connected would influence the cost to you of acquiring human capital yourself. It, this is what I try to explain in that essay that I shared with you, um, that uh, human development is, is not just transactional. It, it's not just people buying stuff. It's also relational. It's, it's people connecting with each other and whatever. I think the family is, is the clearest is the clearest uh, illustration of that because uh, the maturation of the infant from pre-birth is 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 nested within this uh, web, and and the web is not you can't come in and out of it based on uh, changing budgets or prices. It's it's based on how people connect, on who they relate to, on how they understand themselves, on how they identify. And I'm thinking that race. We talk about racial inequality. So what is race? So, you know, whatever. It's, it marks on people's bodies, color their skin or whatever. But no, I mean, it's also identity. It's also meaning. Meaning it's it's uh, significance. It, it has connotations. It, it carries implicit understanding. And those are reflected in how people connect, how they marry. Right. You don't even get race. You don't even get the fact of race unless people behave in a way to produce race. They have to actually decide to produce and to reproduce the underlying physical differentiation that is the is the basis for race. Uh, let me just finish. Let me, I'm, I'm sorry to go on, but I just want to say you asked me what was social capital, and I was trying to explain that if I have a theory where skills, how well you do on the test, uh, how much experience you have in a task, determine wages. But if I have a process of skill acquisition, that is nested within social relationships and not fully expressed through transactions, 
I'm going to get patterns of inequality that have this social aspect to them. And that's what I'm trying to refer to when I use the phrase social capital. So if you have, if you have, let's say, uh, uh, in the extreme, people being forced to intermarry, regardless of skin color, uh, race would over time uh, disappear. Kind of by oh, sure, that's that's and, tautological. That's right. I mean, but well, I, it's both tautological, but also something people don't think about. And you're saying that race is endogenous to the fact that this doesn't happen. That people do systematically make a distinction as to who they marry based on. Uh, skin color and also cultural aspects of their uh you know what that comes along with uh that that's perpetuating uh racial any uh, differences and that uh that the uh that uh, uh differences in uh let's say background and uh history and uh opportunities are leading to uh, uh, to perpetuation of some of the of the inequality that uh, we see in the uh, in the actual you know, world. We see big inequalities in black rate uh, health uh, outcomes and wealth holdings and income attainment, education, quality of education, income levels. Uh, correct. Correct. I, I want to say something else. Yeah, I mean, because I think this gets right at the heart of of the of the the welfare economics we economists of the welfare economics meaning the normative social analysis. How do you make judgments about which state of affairs are better or worse and which other state of affairs? That's a, that's the question of welfare economics, and this gets right at the heart of the welfare economics dilemma. I think for racial equality, which is that the um, prerogatives of association, which actually create race that that is i'm a i'm free I'm, I'm a free agent you can't do what you just got to proposing force people to marry that that's tyrannical that that's uh you know so illiberal as to be beyond belief even beyond the chinese communist party i should hope it wasn't beyond the nazis i mean the nazis weren't too yeah well you, that that is the exception that proves you know the, the argument Exactly. Uh, that you're not going to do that. And, and therefore, and I think, by the way, this applies beyond race. I think it also applies to class. Therefore, the social foundation of the inequality, it, it, it's like there's a hypocrisy built into a certain kind of egalitarianism. People say, oh, let everybody be equal. But they don't really intend to marry the cocky speaking uh, son of a, of a, a chimney sweep. They they, they 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 have no intention of doing the things that would be fundamentally required to create equality, which is surrendering some of your person right. to the project of, you know, like a kibbutz where everybody has to, you know, live in the same common space and, you know, no, you, you can't teach your kids any more than the other people's kids are being taught, even if you have a PhD and, and you know, nobody wants to live in that world. Right. So, so you wrote down, you know, did an important paper uh, in the early I think, 80s about the perpetuation of inequality because if uh, kids get, uh, you know, less, let's say, uh, uh, for because of discrimination or because of lack of uh, uh, 
educational opportunities or quality of education, they earn less and they bequeath less, and then their kids uh, are, you know, less well endowed. And then there's also less endowment of human of knowledge that has been passed from parent to parent, uh, parent to child, and then from child to the grandchild. So you produce a very important study of uh, perpetuation of inequality through time. Uh, how do you think that study has held up? Uh, well, in the sense that you would mean a study, which would mean that an empirically specified elaborate model, which had uh, many moving parts and kind of calibrated all the different dimensions and came to a number at the end of the day. That's that's what I understand Lawrence Kotlikov, my friend, the distinguished economist to me by a study. And what I did, the distance between those things is very substantial because I'm a, you know, I'm a theorist and I, you know, my study was a conceptual framework. It was to put out uh, a kind of, like I said, a kind of model or a kind of sketch. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I we could talk about my papers, but I, I I'd rather keep it at a. Uh, well, it wasn't so much about your paper as whether you think these forces are still there, that that you were putting your finger on whether, you know. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, I I think I think. I mean, well, let me just say this. What I said was, in, in my uh, early work on uh, this dynamic uh, racial income differences stuff, was that. Equal equality in the long run was not guaranteed if you had enough social segregation. In other words, you, you got equality in the economic political sphere and then you got equality in the social sphere. Equality in political economic sphere would mean that in contract, in terms of transactions, in terms of the economics market, buying and selling, race would not be a factor. So it's a level playing field. And then if everything is nice with diminishing returns and there's no market imperfections and whatnot, even though the groups start out different, if the overall economy had a steady state that it was going to approach to, the groups would both approach to that steady state and they would be equal to each other because they were on this glide path. But, but if, um, and you know, it, it's a question of art, how you actually represent the effect that I'm about to describe. If the social sphere is not, art modeling art, how, how do you actually formalize it is what I mean by art. If the social sphere is not equalized and that's when people are connecting with each other in these associations within which the human capital spillovers are taking place. And that could be racially uh, biased and disparate. So, so and, and, and the, 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 the theorem was in the long run, you could have persistent equality, inequality, inequality, even if you leveled the playing field, as long as you had this lumpiness, you had this social connectivity lumpiness that was driven so, by race. So let, me, let me give see if this is a practical example. My understanding, it might be maybe wrong. Uh, it's like a, kind of a casual empiricism here is that if you go to top universities around the country and you look at the black students when they in the cafeteria, the black kids are going to hang together, uh, eat together, uh, and the white kids and the Jewish kids are going to be with them with you know probably more more often together, and Chinese kids will be more often with their group. And then when it comes to their choosing after the freshman year where to live, the black kids will you know house themselves together, and uh, same thing for the Chinese. Now, uh, if uh, let's say the, the non-black uh, uh, 
students have better connections through their parents or uncles or aunts in terms of uh, job opportunities and telling telling their buddies about those opportunities, then the black kids uh, have actually been kind of left out of that opportunity. And that perpetuates itself, even though these are the, maybe it's Stanford, this is the, I understand uh, this happens routinely at Stanford. I was told this by one of the top economists there. And Stanford was even entertaining a, a, quite a policy of forcing people to live with their original roommates through the four years that they were in college. So they wouldn't self-segregate. Uh, and then, so that's, am I picking up on part of what you're talking about here? Well, it's an interesting case study. Uh, the example that you point to about kids in college, how they affiliate and what the consequences of this networking pattern might be for their acquisition of human capital. It's a perfect illustration of the kind of thing that I was talking about. I was just gonna say it's controversial. Uh, in the same way that you can't dictate by law that a person marry outside of their race in the interest of reducing racial segregation, you, you can't prevent people from, uh, you know, choosing to identify in such a manner that the patterns that you just got through describing at a Stanford or someplace else would produce themselves in the lunchroom, in the lecture hall, in the classroom, in terms of what curriculum is taken and stuff like that. I mean, I've been told all kinds of crazy stuff by my students here at Brown. Uh, I was astounded one day in a seminar I was teaching that somebody told me that uh, this was all white, all the students were white, there were 20 of them. I wasn't talking about race, I was talking about freedom of speech. And we were reading classic works and writing papers, but they said they don't take Africana studies. That's the black studies department at Brown. That's the African-American studies department at Brown. It's called Africana. They don't take the Africana studies courses, even though some of them have interesting uh, descriptions to them in the catalog because it puts the black students in class in the position of having to explain to the white kids the truth and the reality of race in, in, uh, in our world. And they put they they feel like they're being put upon. The black kids feel like they're being put upon by having white kids in the uh, who will say something which then has to be explained by a black person as to you know let me tell you what really is going on. And I thought when I heard that 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 was like I mean let me just explain let me underscore I'm in a classroom with undergraduates at Brown they're all white they happen to be white it's not a course about race. One of them says they don't take courses in the Black Studies Department because they don't want to impose on Black students with their presence. Because the Black student has a card and the card says, you made me feel uncomfortable. I have to explain to you now. And think about what that means about pedagogy, about so the identity, the identity fixation. So if you're asking me, I, I know I'll go on for a minute here. S people who are serious about racial equality should fight that because that uh, is sophomoric. That, that's, that's small-minded. Uh, it's a small-minded way of being black. You, you know, you're, you're at the greatest juncture of intellectual development in your life uh, and, and you don't spread your wings, you don't, you don't branch out, you should be learning to speak another language. 
You, you should be finding out what the foreign students are talking about. You, you know, so this warm blanket of comfort, and I'll say something else since I'm talking, Larry. Insecurity, not feeling that you belong because you're struggling to keep up. You know, everybody's rich except you. When your father's a doctor, you know. <laughs> so I'm, I am, uh, I'm too old to even have an opinion about all of this stuff. Now, nobody's going to take me seriously, but it, it has been the journey into the dark forest of, uh, of uh, racial self-absorption in, in identity instead of growing up in the 21st century and finding out that the world's a small place. Everybody's got the world right there in their palm. I can talk to a guy in Russia. You know that? I can talk to the guy in Russia right in my palm. Uh, the world's probably, a small place and you're still, you're still, you know, fixated on your racial identity. I'm not, you know. So, but Glenn, you're saying, you know, I think the history of, you know, your, your, um, I think you've been struggling, uh, as I've observed you uh, intellectually over the years with kind of what you were talking about uh, a few minutes ago and what you were just talking about a few, just, just, just now that uh, we have these kind of inherent, uh, problems associated with these markers and with the fact that people self-segregate and that society that there uh, there's perceptions about uh, uh, let's say blacks who that they're not as let's say maybe as competent in the marketplace because you observe the fact that they haven't earned it much as much you know not on average earning as much so they're being stigmatized by the group average when the average is being determined by uh, the fact that you know there uh, there's been discrimination in the past, and that the, where we are is not a, not independent of how we got here, but then you're also saying that this is not 1967 when you're going to Northwestern. This is um, uh, you know 2022, and that the world has changed, and that we need to. Uh, for example, not engage in affirmative action, uh, you've been, I think, you know, against and then for and then against affirmative action. Where do you stand? Let's just ask specifically. Yeah, I was for it, then I was against it, then I was for it, and now I'm against it. That I've got a, you know, flip flop. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, rather than give a long thing about where, where I stand, I mean, I'll, I'll say where I stand, which is I, I think it's the, I think the, the, the uh, jig is up. Uh, I think the proverbial SHIT has hit the fan. Uh, we're 50 years into the affirmative action era. And I just think it cannot be allowed to become a permanent and institutionalized manner of functioning to secure so-called equity, the presence of African-Americans in elite venues to use different criteria of assessing their fitness. That cannot be allowed to happen. That it happened historically is understandable. But um, what we're doing is we're, we're creating a regime where the very idea of equality will become impossible to obtain. Uh, because, and, and, and where we are inviting a kind of 
money illusion with respect to productivity, a kind of blurring of standard, a, a kind of self-imposed blindness. So it's not to expose the consequences of, 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 of what we want to do. Let me just be very clear about this. Where you can assess the relative merits of candidates for a competitive position with more or less objective means. If you select from the right tail and you use different cutoffs for different population groups as a consequence with large numbers on average, there's going to be significant disparities in the performance of the people after they've been selected. Right. So, so that's not equality. And, and that means that a black kid coming out of Stanford and a white kid coming out of Stanford are going to be viewed differently by the marketplace. Uh, the quality because because on average they're going to be different. I mean, I, I just want to follow it through to the very uncomfortable conclusion. Yes, correct. If they're going to be perceived differently by rational actors in the marketplace, who of course will never say that they in fact do so, and may nevertheless hire and do whatever they want to do, notwithstanding the fact that they perceive it. That's my point. This is insidious. This is a multi-layered corruption where you're trying to make up for the fact that the Blacks haven't, on average, produced as much talent. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Talent at what? Talent at academic economics, talent at uh, stem cell disciplines, talent at uh, the kind of research that underlies medical advance, talent at engineering, et cetera. You, you, you've got a disparity in the first place because the test scores are different. The test scores are just a noisy measure of the talent of the people who are being vetted. So that's the problem. That's the thing that has to be confronted and must be addressed. It must be reversed. Okay, but the, if you use affirmative action, I'll just finish, as the, as the response to that situation, you're building the inequality in and then blinding yourself to it. Okay, so, but the counter argument would be, I think, going back to Glenn one or Glenn two, whatever version of Glenn we taught, because you could, you know. It's Glenn one and Glenn three. I'm Glenn four now. Glenn one and Glenn three were for affirmative action. Glenn two and Glenn four are against it. I think you're the most <laughs> articulate advocate of affirmative action and the most articulate advocate uh, against affirmative action. And uh, so the articulate Glenn for affirmative action would say, well, look, we should really, uh, uh, except that cost of uh, let's make half the for a decade let's make half the Stanford class and every top Ivy schools class black so that we now have uh, you know 20 years later a black elite uh, a bigger black elite we have a lot of you know elite um, black members of society in terms of you know role models in terms of uh, 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 changing uh, the distribution of bequests, the distribution of in income, uh, the uh, uh, the distribution of knowledge that is passed uh, is held and also passed from generation to generation. That uh, that we haven't done affirmative action uh, big time. That the problem we're facing now is that uh, is because we haven't actually done enough of it. Not that we've done too much of it. How do you respond to Glenn One? Uh, he could be right, actually. 
I mean, I didn't know that it was me who was the one making that argument. After a while, I, I was just listening to the argument and it sounded like it could be right. It could be right. So suppose we think about it like the way we're trained to think about it as, as uh, economic, you know, dynamic analysis and whatnot. And you started out in year zero, which is let's say 1964 or whatever. And then you had the optimal adjustment path where you were gonna formulate your dynamic policy, taking all of the various considerations into account of how you are gonna to try to narrow because you know there's rising marginal cost of doing the egalitarian thing. I mean, you don't wanna do it all at once and you wanna kind of spread it out and there are dynamic interacting effects and you gotta take them into account. So suppose we were doing a Kotlikoff-like dynamic model of what the optimal transition path should look like. In that world, what you just described might be right, which is two things. One, you should be doing affirmative action in years zero through 50 to some extent. And you should be doing a lot of it in years zero, one, two, three, four, five, relative to years 35, 40, 45. Both of those statements might be correct. Maybe we didn't do enough. It was certainly controversial from the very start. That's what people say about some of the poverty programs in the great society, they weren't big enough and so forth and so on. Maybe I've got my doubts about the poverty programs, but it might be true about affirmative action. It might be. And maybe we didn't do the right kind because there's a pipeline issue and there's a question of where you invest and so forth. And the incentives are all wrong and it's a collective action problem. The incentives for the people making the decisions about affirmative action are to cover their asses and to take care of their own particular institutional interests. They don't have a systemic model in mind when they make those decisions. And it may be that any single one of them making a decision like relying less on preferential admissions to you know, meet a threshold of minority presence would not do any good unless all of them did it and they can't coordinate on all of them doing it. So that guy, the early Glenn, and then when I was coming out of MIT, I was, I mean, I was saying you can't go colorblind. You can't just be laissez-faire. That was my, you know, I said, you got either racial justice orientation or you got laissez-faire, let the chips fall where they may, you know, kind of libertarian orientation. And I'm saying uh, you can't, I had a correspondence with the great Robert, Robert Nozick, you know, the philosopher, you know, who had this entitlement theory of uh, uh, justice, where he said, if you start out with claims that are legitimate, and people transact, anything that comes about is also legitimate as a consequence of those uh, uh, fair transactions. And I said, but if the starting line is blurred because of history, just like you said, you have to do something. So I agree with that. I agree that that might have been retrospectively a sensible speech in 1980. But we're here in 2022 and uh, the ground is shifting beneath our feet. I think that, you know, the fact that it's Asians quote unquote, I, I don't like this kind of generic, you know, these people are very different among themselves. But in any case, it's students for fair admissions who are an Asian group who are bringing these lawsuits against UNC and Harvard challenging affirmative action in elite higher education is beyond ironic. It is, it is it, in so many levels uh, uh, exposing the uh, thinness and inherent contradictions of this of this uh, view that that we're that we're carrying with us now. Let's talk about life insurance. 
it's important to understand the value of life insurance. I know this from my personal experience. I'm a man in my 70s. I have remarried a younger woman in her 50s. I have to think about how she will manage when I'm gone. The value of life insurance makes a big difference. You might ask why I get life insurance. After all, we pay hundreds of dollars per year to protect our homes, our cars, even our phones. But too many of us aren't taking steps to protect our families' finances. There are mortgage payments, there are private student loans, and other types of debt that won't disappear if something happens to you. A life insurance policy can provide your loved ones with a financial cushion that they can use to cover those costs, and it can provide you with peace of mind that even in a worst-case scenario, they'll be protected. Even if you already have coverage at work, you might want to think about supplementing that. Having life insurance through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their families. And coverage through work isn't portable. If you leave your job, the policy doesn't go with you, meaning a gap in coverage when you need it most. You should think about getting life insurance coverage now. Inflation is driving up prices for just about everything lately. But life insurance rates are actually going down from this time last year. And since life insurance typically gets more expensive as you age, that means now is a great time to buy. By making it easy to compare your options and get a good price from top companies, Policy Genius can help you make sure you're not paying a cent more than you have to for the coverage that you need. Here's how it works. Policy Genius is an insurance marketplace that makes it easy to compare quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in one place to find your lowest price on life insurance. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Options start at just $17 per month for $500,000 of coverage. Just click the link in the description or head to policygenius.com to get personalized quotes in minutes and find the right policy for your needs. The licensed agents at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. They're on hand through the entire process to help you understand your options so you can make decisions with confidence. Policy Genius doesn't add on extra fees. Your personal information is private. Policy Genius doesn't sell your details to third parties. Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and has placed over 150 billion in coverage. So, head to policygenius.com to get your life insurance quotes free and see how much you could save. The country is changing. It's not black and white anymore. This is not 1960. This is 2022. The world is small. The world is very small. People are moving around. So um, locking in this uh, depend. I'll repeat myself, locking in this dependency. This is the late Glenn. I'm explaining the difference between the early Glenn and the late Glenn. That train left the station. We missed our chance. We are where we are now. And the late Glenn says, uh, it's time to man up and woman up. Let the chips fall where they may. Let's, you know, 
literally where they may, would, would, I, would, would I admit a class without any black students in it at a place like Harvard? Of course not, of course not. But um, have you looked at those data? <coughs> RC, I mean, I, 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 just for a moment, just for a moment. Okay. Peter R.C. Diacono, Duke uh, labor economist, who's the expert witness for the students for fair admission. David Card, Nobel honoree, expert witness for the uh, Harvard. Harvard. Yeah, right. And Card says, and here's the argument. He says, look, we could fill up the class with high test scores if we wanted to. We're not just interested in test scores. We're interested in many qualities of the students. And when you take those qualities into account, we're not discriminating. And R.C. Diacono says, Stratify the applicant pool over a 10-year period by decile of their academic qualifications, an index of test scores and grades, the 10th, the 20th, the 30th percentile, and so forth. Conditional on decile and ethnicity. What's the probability that you fall in that decile? What fraction of the Black applicants fall in the fourth decile of the distribution of academic qualifications, the second, the third, the 10th? And conditional on decile, what's your chance of being admitted? So that he's got these two tables. To me, these two tables. So when you look at the applicant pool, of course, application is endogenous. Everybody out there in the world, we're economists over here. So hold on, hold on. Okay, we're going to actually talk a little bit. Application is a choice. The pool of people who he is looking at who have applied have self-selected. I'm aware of that. Uh, almost two-thirds of the Black kids are in the bottom two deciles of the applicant pool. Mm -hmm. Almost... Uh, Two-thirds of Asian kids are in the top two deciles of the African pool. Those numbers are only slightly off. Conditional on being in a decile, let's say the seventh, you're between the 70th and 80th percentile of the, of the uh, stratification of applicants by academic qualification. If you're Black, you got a 35 or 40 percent chance of being admitted. If you're Asian, you've got a 10 percent or a 7 percent chance of being admitted. If you're in the top two deciles and you're Black, of which only like about 5% of the Black population are, you've got a 50% chance of being admitted at Harvard. And if you're Asian, you've got a 15 or a 20% chance of being admitted. Yeah. So I'm just saying, no, I agree. We're, we're twisting maybe... ourselves into a pivot. And I think the, the guys like Clarence Thomas are right about this. Come on, you all can get mad at me if you want to. We're talking about the Constitution of the United States of America and about the law, about the order under which we're going to govern ourselves. You can't have on this argument, which is why I signed on, state actors making that kind of racially discriminatory discretionary decision with the protection of the, uh, the Constitution behind that. That's, that's a problem for our country. It's not the solution. This is not the answer. We have, a, we have a problem. The inequality must be dealt with. Changing the standards and discriminating in this way is not the answer. Are you sure? Are you sure we? this is not part of the optimal, uh, let's say, Glenn one policy and that uh, we actually should be, uh, you know, following, uh, you know, siding with Harvard on this and that we need to have uh have this policy in place for another 10 years uh how do you know for sure you're you got the timing right you kind of signed the policy no. a few minutes it, ago okay no i don't know that i have the timing right it's very opportunistic the case is at hand so it has to be decided uh 
it's very qualitative. It's not a precise, uh, you know, this is the thing that the point is, I think the right move now is to bite the bullet on what I'm talking about. Let me, okay. So let me, uh, which is the development of equal performative capacities between the populations, not changing the standards that you judge them by, by okay. race. So you, so you're advocating a different form of policy to deal with, uh, the, the social capital differences that uh, existed and still exist. Correct. And can, let me just make a philosophical observation. I am not advocating for indifference to the inequality. Uh, so I'm not saying, never mind, let's just move on. Right. Don't do anything. I'm saying, don't do this. D don't, don't do this thing here. But I would defend and many people who are colorblind are colorblind at the secondary level i'm distinguishing between being uh colorblind with respect to how you calibrate your policy in terms of action you don't discriminate between people based on race and colorblind in terms of how you evaluate alternative outcomes which is i'm indifferent i'm i'm indifferent about the racial hit and, I, and I'm not indifferent. I, I, I want to address the inequality, but I don't want to do it by preferential means, by pref, preferential policy, selective, preferential selection policy means. So if we could make uh, Glenn Lowry, let's say the, the czar, let's say the dictator of the U.S., uh, given the current, you know, what would you do? Yeah, or have you thought, through, I mean, this may not be your bag, you may not have thought through this and maybe I shouldn't be putting it on the spot. I mean, I'll tell you one thing I would do, which is I would take a very close look at the disincentives for people to work and to get married who are poor, regardless of color. Sure. Because you have uh, probably at least, a, well, from the research I've done, people could go to kotlikoff.net and look at an article called The Marginal Taxation of American Workers, uh, uh, which, which is joint with uh, Alan Auerbach and Dave Altick, who's at the Allen's at the at Berkeley, a professor of economics, and Dave is the head of research at the Atlanta Federal Reserve uh, Bank. So what we show is that um, if you look at the bottom 20% of uh, households, and you look at uh, the the marginal tax bracket, the tax bracket of of these low-income people, you find that uh, about a quarter are in marginal tax brackets of 70% or more. So we've set up these benefit programs to help the poor, the war on poverty, uh, yeah. you know, Medicaid, food stamps, welfare, uh, supplemental security income, uh, disability benefits. Uh, and we also have a tax system, the earned income tax credit, for example, is part of the federal income tax. And they're all state-specific programs, basically. Uh, so you've got like 51 different versions of this. But you find that uh, uh, a quarter of this low of, of the or is 20% are in marginal tax brackets above 70%. So let me ask you, Glenn, if I told you that you could work, I'm young, I'm Uncle Sam, I say, um, hey, Glenn, here's a great job for you. And by the way, 70 cents out of every dollar you earn is mine. Uh, would you be keen on working, uh, taking that job? I think not. At some point you'd say, I'd rather just take the welfare, the, you know, the basic benefits, the American, a care affordable care act the obamacare has some significant work disincentives 
because yeah. you earn more money, you lose these benefits. So we need to have a, so that's what I'm saying. That one of the big problems here is that we're locking the poor into poverty and the poor disproportionately, well, let's say a disproportionate fraction of the black population is poor. So we need to fix that, but let me give you time to- Well, no, that's, that's, I mean, you are the, you're the public finance, uh, economists here and uh, I'm, I <laughs> am quite prepared to believe that the behavioral consequences of uh, getting 30 cents on the dollar versus getting 100 percent on the dollar for you know looking for a job or working an extra shift or would be significant I'm, I'm quite prepared to believe that by the way just to be clear it's that's the minimum uh 70 percent is the minimum marginal of tax bracket for these a quarter taxes, of this population oh no for yeah, these 70 taxes can be ten thousand percent you could lose your you go back and you, you earn an extra thousand bucks you lose your medicaid for yourself and your kids you could lose your lose your food stamps your housing and even even if people are not like in our models making these maximizing decisions with full information about the policy and trading it off uh just exactly even if they're uh on a kind of uh rule of thumb you know kind of uh uh, patterns of behavior that get emulated and, and replicated across different groups of people and that are near nearly, you know, there's an evolutionary dimension to it and, and they, they're nearly optimal. The, the effect of this will be to shape the culture, to, to shape how people think about work, about themselves, about where their support comes from and things of this kind. And this is, you know, this is what the conservative critique has been all along about the, about the, the welfare state. There's some people that are in a situation where if they have extra kids, they're going to get extra money. If they're and there's others that are in a situation where if they have extra kids, they would lose money. But but we um, so if you have more kids, let's say you're in a situation where you're deeply incentivized or heavily incentivized to have children uh, and not to get married because now you're going to be over some thresholds where you lose all these benefits. Uh, now you've got you know low income, more kids to share. Uh, to sp spread that low income over and therefore and less time to devote to, to any one child and that means less time to talk to that kid we know from jim heckman's work uh that the earliest stages of uh you know the, just talking to kids at yeah. baby infants at an early stage from zero to three uh then how much you uh you know how much effort and uh resources you apply to and, uh, and also healthcare to early stage development appears to be quite critical for future yeah. uh, earnings capacity, for example. I want to say something, which is that the solution is to universalize the benefit and not to make it means tested, the solution to the problem. But th that's not really a solution, is it? Um, or is it? So the problem is we want to help poor people, but we don't want to help everybody. So we only make the help available if people remain poor and the incentive therefore for them to do things that make them less poor is undercut. But if we universalize the benefit. We can't do that. We can't afford that. We can't afford it. It's 100% it, it's of the people that we're targeting instead of 20% of the people. 
But 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 more than that, we we change the character of our society, don't we? And, and we become socialist, and and maybe we don't want to do that. No, I would say that there's a that there you know we we have a current welfare system. It's like 51 states, 51 uh, states, including D.C. times something like 30 different fiscal programs. That's our welfare system. Nobody has optimized over this, so we can do a hell of a lot better. We can get uh, without going broke, uh, we're getting actually, I think, much more revenue, the the 20%, make sure that nobody in the 20, lowest 20% is above a, in a marginal tax bracket above 30% uh, by just some, you know, redesign of this entire fiscal system. I, I firmly believe that knowing, you know, uh, how these systems are set up and, and uh, how it can be fixed. But, and that's not just a U.S. problem, it's I was just consulting in Malta. I was on a trip with the World Bank. You look, they've got another 20 programs. These bureaucracies grow on themselves. This is also part of, I think, the right-wing critique about big government that the left-hand side hand doesn't know what the right-hand side, these agencies are not coordinating. Uh, so we do need to have some rational reform where I think we can come to some common ground because I don't think the left wants to have people in, mar in marginal tax brackets above 70%. Uh, and the right doesn't want it, want it either. I think we should start, uh, you know, with some some solutions here that are uh, universally accepted and, and straightforward and kind of low hanging fruit, like early childhood intervention. You know, in, in uh, El Salvador, I did some work there, consulting work with UNICEF, and they send uh, because they know the kids are not getting the the children, the babies are not getting uh, the kind of inputs that they need for their development they send uh they have a small army of social workers and nurses who go to their those kids homes uh on a routine basis to make sure their the parents know how to bring the kids up and that the kids have the right you know yeah. nutrition and blah 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 and that's well there was gonna... an experiment here in the united states that went on for years where a nurse home visitation I can't remember the scholars who studied it, but there, when I was doing this kind of social policy stuff 10, 15 years ago, I would have been able to cite them. But uh, they, uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, Jim Wilson, the political scientist James K. Wilson, would would you know follow and 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 talk about in his writing. They sent um, nurses home with um, uh, low-income mothers. Uh, on an experimental basis, there was a treatment and control group, and they they found significant benefits over uh, a few years from the policy intervention of uh, the nurse home visitation, not just for uh, health of the kid, but also for the well-being of the mother, uh, you know, economic, social well-being of the mother subsequently. So, yeah. So I have this, you know, uh, uh, I ran for president last, not last time, but the time before as a writing candidate. And I have on my website, uh, a, a, my platform, which is turned into a book called, I turned it into a free download book at kotlikoff.net, which is called You're Hired, not You're Fired, but You're Hired. And it talks about how to fix all these things. And it does have a plan for getting everybody into a 30% marginal tax bracket without destroying all the transfers to poor people. Uh, so I think we I think there is a solution there, and for people that want to see something concrete, maybe I not be the best, but um, I think there is a way to do it. The uh, 
Well, let me uh, spend the last few minutes here with you, Glenn. Uh, you know, let me just kind of summarize that you're an activist uh, in some, to a large degree, but uh, not everywhere, not on every, so you're um, uh, opposed to certain kinds of social uh, interventions, but forms of, uh, but not in general. So the Glenn one is still there, Glenn two is still there, Glenn three and four, you're a composite and uh, you're not gonna be pigeonholed into one of these Glens per se, right? That's a fair characterization. Yeah, I got a uh, feature at the, the glenlowry.substack newsletter called the old Glen and the new Glen. So if people go glenlowry.substack.com, they will see across the top different you know things you can click on. And one of them is old Glen versus new Glen. And in it, uh, what we do is we take some excerpts from speeches that I gave 20, 25 years ago that are on YouTube. And then uh, my excellent newsletter editor, Mark Sussman, interviews me and it shows the old guy talking. The old guy, of course, is the young guy. And then he interviews me and he says, like, put the microphone in front of me. So how do you answer that? How do you answer that? And so I end up in a debate with myself about a lot of different kind of stuff. <laughs> that must be great. So Glenn's, uh, it's Glenn, give us, give us the URL again for the Glenn show. G-L-E-N-N-L-O-U-R-Y, no space, first name, last name, Glenn Lowry dot substack dot com. Cool. So let me uh, close by asking you, uh, you've got a, you have written a number of books that people, uh, you know, for the public uh, and you speak uh, and write to the public. You're one of the most elegant uh, intellectuals on the planet. Uh, Thank you. And uh, no question. The um, there's a new book coming out that you're writing. Your, your biography, autobiography. Uh, it's called The Enemy Within. I just want to give you a chance to. I don't want you to kind of scoop your book, but I want you to to give you a, a chance to kind of explain maybe the the title and why you felt compelled to write an autobiography. Okay, that's uh, that's a good question. I've been threatening to write this book for a decade. I've been talking about writing a memoir for a decade. Everybody told me, oh, you ought to write a memoir, you ought to write a memoir because your story is so interesting, your life is fascinating. And I'll tell you just very briefly what they're talking about. Uh, and uh, it's finally now happening. It's in production with, you know, um, I'm, I'm working on it with some help and support from a guy that I'm talking to and we're interacting and, and whatnot. And I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about the process of producing this book. I'm, I'm, you know, so it's my, it's my life right now. It's what I'm doing. Um, so that's the book. Uh, the story is, um, I came up in a working class black family in Chicago, you know, Northwestern MIT. I became a professor at Harvard at a very young age. Uh, I had a high-flying career, you know, in magazine cover, practically, and, you know, Reagan administration. I was being, uh, this is Glenn number two. This is Glenn number two. I was being targeted for a high-level office in the Reagan administration. When I, and then I, then I hit the skids. Uh, I had a, a horrible uh, embarrassment and humiliation when I was accused of assaulting 
a woman, and it became public, a woman with whom I was involved in an extramarital affair. Uh, and I, I went into a depression. I, I fell into a drug dependency. I was, you know, using crack cocaine with uh, uncontrollably. I was in a lot of trouble. Uh, this is in the 80s. While I'm at Harvard, you know, my wonderful wife, the late uh, fine economist, Linda Lowry, stuck with me through all of this horrific stuff. And we put our lives back together. And I became a born-again Christian, a member of a church, a staunch member of a congregation. Uh, we have two children, Glenn and Nehemiah, our youngest, my youngest two uh, progeny. And, and, you know, so I have a story. I have a story to tell. And you so also, that's, that's, just say, you got, before school, you had, uh, you know, you had another a marriage uh, with two or three children. And, yes, three but, children. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I was a father at the age of 17. But to say, you you know, to say in like a, in the space of a breath that I grew up in a middle class black household, you had lots of, you know, you had rough days as a kid. Uh, that it other was a working class household, you could say, but yeah, okay. And uh, yeah. We lived in a little apartment up in the back of a great house that my aunt owned, my mother, my sister, and I. I slept uh, on the couch in the living room after I got too old to sleep in the one bedroom that my sister and I were sharing with each other when we were little kids, this kind of thing. Um, I've been working all of my life. I've worked at printing plants. I've worked at McDonald's. I've, you know, uh, went to graduate school with a wife and two little kids in tow, you know, I mean, I, you know. You've scraping by. What was on your briefcase? I will. <laughs> what, what was rise that? above it. I rise above it. So you've been rise above it! Exclamation point. Right. That was my bumper sticker. I carried it one on either side of my little attaché case when I go to class. I'd set it right down in the aisle next to my chair. You know, everywhere I would go, I'd carry this rise above it. That was my motto. My, you know, so. Yeah. This is Horatio Alger, who's not on a straight path, who's going down, 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 and up, 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 and then down. Well, no, I mean, it's deep. It's deep, Larry. I mean, I can't tell you because, you know, I don't want to spoil it for everybody. The, the challenge of self-governance, and I'm, I was very close to Thomas Schelling, the great, uh, late great economist, was a friend of mine, and a mentor, a colleague at Harvard when I was there. And he worked on many things. The strategy of conflict is his best known uh, work uh, on uh, strategic deterrence uh, kind of issues uh, with applications to the nuclear standoff. But uh, he, he worked on other things as well. And he was, he was very clever and, and unique in the way in which he would approach problems that economists were interested in. And one of those problems is governance. It's the governance of the self. It's actually doing what you think you want to do. You, you know, you want to do it, but you don't actually do it. It's like there's multiple cells there. There's the guy that's thinking about what he wants to do, and then there's the guy that's acting in the moment. And Tom saw all these clever uh, contractual way, you know, like savings clubs where you get a lower return on your money, but you're, you're putting in the money every month, you know, because you commit yourself, whatever, whatever. This is Tom Schelling. Now about Glenn Lowry. Self-regard, this is, you know, you write a memoir, you write a book about yourself. Um, are you gonna be honest with yourself? I mean, that's number question number one. Who's, 
who are you fooling? You know, now the reader, the reader of my memoir does have a problem because there's a strategic inference issue here. All your evidence is coming from me. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm the decider about what it is you know about me. So you should assume that I'm making those decisions on behalf of my own interests, not necessarily yours. Yours are in knowing, quote unquote, the truth. Mine are in whatever my interests are. We don't have to go into that right now. <laughs> but, but, but that's me and the reader. What about me and me? What, what about me and myself? So I'll just, again, not to go into the book, the cover story and the real story, the cover story and the real story. Let's sit down with a piece of paper and make a list of all of the fuck ups that we have perpetrated in our life. Okay. The time I damn it, I really, I know I shouldn't have, I mean, I, you know, you've got some, I'm not asking you what they are. Let's be honest with ourselves about what was really going on. Okay. The first reflex is to reach for the cover story, the self exculpatory, self aggrandizing cover. That's our first instinct. What's the real story? Okay, the, the path to enlightenment, <laughs> says Confucius, <laughs> is uh, illuminated by the distinct, distinguishing between the cover story and the real story for yourself, not for anybody else. And uh, that's one of the challenges, you know, the enemy within. I mean, I did overcome drug addiction. I have I have a story in the book about my religious journey where I was a born again Christian. I was baptized at the age of 40. You go down under the water and you come back up again. And, uh, you know, I mean, the claim is that Jesus was raised from the dead. I don't mean to offend anybody who might hear this. It's an extraordinary claim that a man was raised from the dead and lives on now even to this day extraordinary thing to believe. And I believed it, or I thought I did, or did I, did I really think I did? Do you see what I'm getting at? Was I always deluding myself? Was it a beneficial self-delusion of someone who was addicted to crack cocaine and just wanted to stop using and have a normal life? Did I suspend my critical faculties for a decade? God, I don't know that I wanna say that to my fellow congregants who are believers still. But there you are, the real story, the cover story, self-regard, self-examination. All, all, all I want is the first copy <laughs> for the draft. This is going to be a fantastic. This is, I already read a, bit, a little bit of it. You've given me a couple pages. It's a, it's a page turner. It's going to be, well, it's not done yet, but uh, I don't think anybody uh, listening to today uh, will, will do anything but run to the bookstore or to wherever, Barnes & Noble's local bookstore, go there and get the book once it's available. But anyway, Glenn, uh, this has been, as usual, a um, revelation. And the, uh, you know, I hope we get to, um, uh, you know, to the position through time uh, where where the color of one's skin uh, is just completely irrelevant. I, I would urge everybody to go look at President Kennedy's speech when he was advocating for the civil rights bill and uh, talked about the fact that unless we pass this, uh, who would want to change the color of their skin? I think saying those words at that time, he's a very clever guy, very, very brilliant guy that nobody would think about 
wanting to become black if they were white. Uh, but we should get to the point where we're all indifferent. That would be. Well, I'm actually not indifferent. I like I like being black. <laughs> it's all I know. It's all I know. I don't know about I don't know about what you say. I think some of these uh, white kids that listen to hip hop and turn their cats sideways and, and are trying to be black in a cultural sense might think that it was the coolest thing in the world to be black. Isn't there a scene in a movie somewhere? I've, I've seen this recently where there's a bunch of white kids, you know, they're uh, suburban uh, brats who are, again, trying to be cool. They're smoking weed. They're listening to, you know, hip hop. They're driving around in the car trying to pick up girls. And somebody mistakenly thinks they're black. <laughs> and they say, "Woo man, did you see it? He thought we were black. We thought, and, you know, they're slapping each other on the back because the onlooker mistakenly thought that they were black. They were proud that they carried themselves in such a way that they could be mistaken for being yeah. black. I, I think there's more of that out there than you might realize. <laughs> I, I think, well, I, yes, I, I agree. Well, anyway, this has been terrific and uh, thanks, thanks so much. Okay, Larry. Gentlemen.